Thank you so much, Carolyn, for the announcements and reading. We are in Genesis 32 this morning. And I want to start by asking you a question. And that question is, do you feel like you are wrestling? Is life a grand wrestling match for you? Every time you feel like you've maneuvered life to the ground and pinned it down, do you feel like it has flipped back over and started wrestling you again? Do you feel like your existence is one of wrestling? If you do, let me just assure you this morning that you are not crazy that you are not imagining things, that you are not alone, that you are not having some unusual experience that I have felt like I have lived and have been living in a wrestling match that those sitting beside you, behind you, in front of you have felt like they were wrestling as well. We have all had this experience that life was like a giant wrestling match. But you do have to figure out what this wrestling match is all about, right? You got to figure out who it is that you are actually wrestling, right? Like, are you really wrestling the people and the places and the circumstances around you, or are you wrestling with something, someone above you? And what are you really wrestling for, Are you wrestling for comfort? Are you wrestling for assurance? Are you wrestling for control? Or are you being wrestled down to a simple trust? At the end of the day, I suppose it's also important to ask one more question about what feels like a wrestling match of life, and that would be this. Is there any way to win? You ever wondered that? Well, we get a lot of answers from Jacob's life. Jacob's life from start to finish is at one long wrestling match. After all, he comes out of the womb wrestling his brother Esau. He comes out of the womb grabbing for his heel. He wrestles intellectually with his brother later on, giving him the red stew, the to-go order from Panera in place of the birthright, right, the firstborn blessing. He wrestles deceptively his brother Uh, wrestling him down by putting on his brother's garments and his brother's scent to trick his father Isaac into giving him the blessing of the firstborn. After that, Esau wanted to do much more than wrestle. Esau wanted to kill his brother Jacob. In fact, Esau vowed to kill his brother Jacob. So Jacob ran, and he lived with a guy named Laban. We talked about this last week. 450 miles away, he lived with him for 20 years, and the wrestling of life just continued. Jacob wrestled with Laban, Over wages, he changed his wages ten times. He wrestled with him over family control. God eventually tells Jacob to leave Laban and to go back to Esau, back home to Canaan. And Laban caught up with him and argued with him and confronted him and threatened him until finally they agreed to separate. So one wrestling match is over with Laban, but another one is starting. Today in Genesis 32, Jacob is still making his way back to Canaan like God told him to do, where God told him to go. And he knows that when he gets to Canaan, he's going to have to see Esau's face. For the first time in 20 years, he's going to have to face his brother who wanted him dead all those years ago. And so he's preparing himself for like an ultimate match. This, this 
wrestling match of somehow appeasing Esau, moving back close by him and to be with family, but he fears that he's going to be killed by Esau. He, this is the match that, that he is most scared of. I mean, Jacob is terrified thinking that Esau is going to keep his vow that he made 20 years before to kill him and everyone with him. Esau is going to go postal on him, and Jacob is preparing for this, and he is bracing for this. He is considering this his ultimate wrestling match. Coming back to see Esau. But another greater wrestler and another greater wrestling match catches him by surprise. That's the story today. And there is a lot to learn, like we said, from Jacob's life. And I want you to get as much out of this awesome chapter as you can, chapter 32. So what I want to do is first just give you chapter 32 summarized, one big statement And then we'll spend the rest of the time diving into that statement, segment by segment, and looking at it a little more carefully. But in this chapter, chapter 32, here's what we get. Here's the summary. That really, there is no need to wrestle, but we do. And we assess our situation rather than our Savior. And we catastrophize everything. So we attempt to manage our lives rather than steward our lives We strive for an assurance we can never really have until God has to wrestle us back down to a simple trust. That's the summary. Now let's dive in and let's break this apart so that you too, like Jacob, can be wrestled down to a simple trust in Jesus. I want to tell you this. We have no need to wrestle. Look at verse 1 and 2. Chapter 32, verse 1 and 2. We have no need to wrestle because God promises to wrestle for us. Verse 1 says, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's host or this is God's camp. And he called that place Mahanaim, I believe. Your guess is as good as mine. Mahanaim. This word, whatever, however it's pronounced, has a meaning, and the meaning is two camps. In other words, as he heads back to face Esau, the first thing he sees are the angels of God, the presence of God. And he says, it looks like I have one giant campsite, but really there's actually two campsites here, my campsite and God's campsite. God's presence, God is with us, God is for us, God is watching. That's the big idea. Right? This is true for him and his camp. This is true for you and your house. It looks like you have one house, but really God lives there too. It looks like you have one office, but really God works there too. It looks like we have one church, but remember God is in the midst of us this morning. It is Mahanaim, two camps, not just one. God is with Jacob. Yes, Jacob is heading towards Esau, but God is with him. He is aware of this. God is with him in this. God can handle this. God can be trusted. I mean, life becomes so much smoother when you finally realize that God can be trusted. He's trustworthy. He can handle the entire situation. He can manage it all. There's no need to wrestle. All Jacob has to do is obey The only thing you're on the hook for this morning is to obey God and to follow Jesus, to love him with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That's all you really have to do. God just says, go to Canaan. He doesn't tell Jacob to mess with Esau. He doesn't tell Jacob to figure out where Esau is, physically or emotionally, at at the moment. There's no need to wrestle. He just has to obey. But like us, Jacob 
His mind wanders. Jacob knows that God has control, but he figures that maybe he can add a little control to it. He knows that God can see everything, but maybe somehow I can see something God has overlooked. His camp is amongst our camp, but I'm still going to check on my camp to make sure it's just so. This is what Jacob does in verses 3 through 5. He has no need to wrestle, but he enters the ring. And he assesses his situation, not his Savior. Look at verses 3 through 5. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, to the land of Seir, to the country of Edom. God never told him to do this. God said, just go to Canaan, and here I am, walking with you. But Esau wants to take the reins a little bit to make sure, 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 he's safe. And he commanded his messengers, saying, Thus speak to my lord Esau. I have sojourned with Laban, and I have stayed there till now. Verse 5, I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and manservants and woman servants. I got a Nintendo Switch. I got an Escalade. I got a home theater. And I have sent to tell my Lord that I might find grace in thy sight. In other words, Esau, it's me, Jacob. You might remember me from childhood when I ruined your life, such and such. right? But now I'm really rich and I'm coming back home. And if you'll forget that vow you made to kill me, I'm going to share all my stuff with you. That's the idea. So the messengers go to Esau and they deliver this message. And what happens is as they come back, the messengers give Jacob some word from Esau and Jacob takes this as a glimpse into the situation ahead. He takes it as a glimpse into the future that he does not need. You need to hear this from the front to the back this morning. The future is on a need-to-know basis. When we need to know it, God reveals it. If he doesn't reveal it, you don't need to know it. And to be honest, sometimes you don't want to know it. You can't handle it yet, though you'll be able to handle it then. It's a need-to-know thing. And here he's trying to get a glimpse into the future. And whenever we do this on our own, we, we, we try to seek out our potential future. We tend to get more than we bargain for, more than we can handle. And we start prepping for things that are never going to happen. It freaks us out. So he gets this glimpse into his potential future. Here's what it is. Uh, glimpse into his potential future. Verse 6, the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau. We told Esau that you were rich and that you had the, the Nintendo Switch and the big screen. We told him all that. And he said he's going to come meet you with 400 of his men. Now here's a question. Is this... Good news or bad news? The answer is it's neither. At this point, it is just news. Esau is coming to greet you with his mighty men. Apparently, he's like his grandfather Abraham, who had a small personal army. No big deal. That was a little militia. No biggie. He's coming to meet you. But what does it mean to Jacob? Well, see, here's the truth. Jacob doesn't know what it actually means. But in Jacob's head, it's Esau's coming to kill us all. But nobody knows that. It could be that he's coming and he's bringing 400 dudes for self-defense in case Jacob tries to attack. Because we all know Jacob's got issues. And who knows what he's going to do. It could be that, hey, we're actually on our way out of town anyway. Because our little militia has to fight this other militia. You wouldn't understand. It's all political. Right, And we're, we'll just meet you on the way out. 
It could be that. It could be, we don't know what it means. It just says he's coming to greet you with 400 men. But what does Jacob do? As he gets this glimpse of the future, he tries to piece it together. He tries to assess the situation, and he totally forgets about the Savior. You are constantly trying to put puzzle pieces together about something that may never happen, aren't you? You're trying to see a future that's none of your business. Your business is worshiping God today. Amen? That's your business. Your business is all in the present. He takes his eyes off the Savior, he looks at the situation, and he forgets the, this idea that, sure, Esau is coming with 400 men, but who is coming with Jacob? The angels of the Lord, God himself. You remember that whole two camps thing? It was like one verse ago, Jacob. But like us, we rarely, I rarely, take a good look at the Savior, assess the situation. This leads to catastrophizing. We catastrophize everything. If you have an anxiety disorder and you go to therapy for your anxiety, the therapist is going to teach you about something called catastrophizing. Don't ask me how I know. <laughs> catastrophizing is the habit of interpreting information in the worst possible light. It's like your imagination hears the title of a movie and it begins to play a trailer that's filled with horrifying scenes about your potential future. Right? So you miss a call from your wife and your imagination goes to the worst case scenario. Like, house is burned down and here you are, you know, like, what are we going to do? How are we going to rebuild? Really, she was just calling to tell you that there's, you know, there's a new $5 footlong right, out at Subway. You got to go buy and get it. It's meatball stuff. It's amazing. Right? It's nothing. Right? Jacob... Esau's coming with 400 men. He's going to kill us all. It's catastrophizing. You don't know that that's what's going to happen, but we do this. We catastrophize everything, and so we start to react emotionally to these mental pictures about a potential future rather than the current reality of God's presence. And you get scared of what you're seeing in your head, so you start doing things to avoid that, and you start preparing yourself for things that aren't actually even happening. Jacob's reality is that Esau is coming to greet him. I don't want to give away any spoilers here, but some of you have read Genesis 33. Jacob is going to meet Esau. Esau's going to meet him. Esau's coming to greet Jacob. But in the back of Jacob's mind is the worst case scenario, as if that is concretely happening. 400 men from Esau ripping through him, his wives, his kids, his employees, his wealth, leaving him for dead. He catastrophizes the news. And this breeds in him a great fear. I mean, he's battling a crippling anxiety. You'll see in the text he is terrified. And this is where we start wrestling. This is why God tells us all the time, fear not. Because when we start to fear, we start wrestling. Take our eyes off the Savior, catastrophize the future, start wrestling. We get afraid, we start clawing for management instead of considering stewardship. We pick management, which we're not called to, over stewardship, which we're always called to. Stewardship is this idea that someone above you hands down a plan. And you do your best with everything you got to make that plan go forward, to enact the plan, right? This is why we talk about stewardship when it comes to money. The idea is that God above you gives you money. 
And the plan is to build the kingdom of God, to meet the needs of the poor, and to thank him for the goods that it does give you. And so you take the money from down, down from on high, and you begin to steward it. Man, you, 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 you begin to try to do the plan of meeting the needs of others, meeting the needs of the family, whatever. It's called stewardship. It's where someone gives you a plan, you act on it. Jacob, go to Canaan. What's Jacob supposed to do? Act on it. Just, I'm getting to Canaan. That's what he's supposed to do. But when we get afraid, what we do is we swap stewardship for management. And it's a similar word, but it's a little bit different for our purposes today. And that what I mean is, what Jacob's about to do, what we do, instead of stewarding our lives, we try to manage our lives. And management is where we come up with a plan, and then we give it to God to steward. You ever done this? I do it all the time, man. Repeat offender. I'm in upper management, and it's a disaster. Management is when we come up with a plan and ask God to do his best to fulfill it. Management is when we come up with a plan and then give God our to-do list. We call it prayer. He's picking management over stewardship. And you can see this because he has no need to wrestle, but he, he, he assesses the situation instead of the Savior, catastrophizes everything, and now he's going to attempt to manage his life, come up with this plan, and ask God to bless it. Verse 7 and 8. It says, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that was with him, and the flocks, and the herds, and the camels, and the two bands. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company, and he smites it, then the other company, which is left, shall escape. Okay, so let's back up a little bit. He hasn't yet asked God to bless it. This is actually part of his management. So I forgot about this. He, this is it. Okay, like we said, he's choosing management over stewardship. Say, well, what do he do? How do you know? How do you know he took management instead of stewardship? Well, here's his management. Right? He's going to take his people, right? Wives, kids, servants, whatever, and he's going to put them into two camps. And this is one of those decisions that are logical, but it's not rational. Right? So this is his first move. He's like, Esau's coming, 400 men. Okay, I'm going to put you over here, you over there. If he kills one of you, at least I'll have half a family left. I guess if Esau really was coming with 400 men, there'd be some kind of morbid logic to it. But it's actually not rational because nobody knows if Esau's coming to pillage the camp. You see, when we catastrophize, we fail to employ rational thinking. So here's rational thinking. I could see Jacob being afraid that Esau's coming to kill me because I offended him all those years ago. I could see that. But rational thinking actually would not lead you to believe that Esau's coming to kill everybody. A couple of reasons. One is Esau doesn't even know what Jacob has. Like for all Esau knows, Jacob has 400 dudes on his side, right? He's just assuming that Esau knows you don't have what he has. Additionally, Esau's still related to Laban. And some of these daughters and grandkids and some of all this stuff is Laban's. And he doesn't want the wrath of Uncle Laban. And he still loves his father Isaac. Remember, he was the favored child of Isaac. And so Esau probably doesn't want to take out all the grandkids of his beloved father, Isaac. But Jacob isn't thinking rationally, right? He's catastrophizing. But his fear now, because of his management, is not, is it's not this place of peace. He's divided everybody into two posses, hoping one survives. So I'm guessing morale is down in both camps. 
This is his management. This is his energy, his effort. I mean, it's so much trauma. And here's where he asked God to bless it. All right, so he comes up with all this, and then he prays about it. Not the other way around. Verse 9 through 11, Jacob said, O God, my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, the Lord which said to me, return to your country, to your kindred, and, and, and I will deal well with thee. I'm not worthy of the least of all your mercies. Verse 11, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. Say, what's wrong with that prayer? In one sense, nothing. You see, Jacob is just like us. Jacob is a mixed bag. Just like you, just like me. He's doing some things really wrong, some things really well. And one of the things he's doing well is this prayer. I mean, this prayer has all the elements of a worship-filled prayer. In fact, this is the longest recorded prayer in the book of Genesis because it's fantastic. I mean, it has reverence, right? God of my father Abraham, Lord. It has humility. I am not worthy of your mercy. It has honesty. I fear my brother Esau. It has a sincere petition. Deliver me. It's an incredible prayer. I mean, it shows that Jacob has actually come a really long way since we met him. I mean, it shows that he is growing. After all, this journey towards Esau, though he's managing it rather than stewarding it, he is in the back of his mind, he's obeying God by going to Canaan. Like, he's trying. So there's a lot of good in this prayer and a lot to be celebrated. However, what we see through the prayer is that Jacob is simply not yet at a place where he is willing to give up management. And we know this because the prayer doesn't read, God, what's your plan? God, if he does attack, how do we respond? God, would you rather me just go meet Esau alone versus bringing the tribe into danger? God, you manage, I steward. Is not asking this way or these things. Like us, he's sort of this unstable, double-minded man who wants to walk by faith and by sight, not, not by sight. He wants to be the manager. He wants God to be the steward, not the other way around. And so as incredible as this prayer is, what you see is at the end of the prayer, he doesn't do or feel any differently. Once he says amen, he just continues on with his nerves at level 100. Right? So he makes the plan, asks God to bless the plan, and now he just advances the plan. Verse 13, he lodged there that night, and he took that which came to his hand as a present for his brother Esau. So here's his next big management idea. I'm going to send a present ahead of me before I meet him tomorrow. So verse 14 and 15 lists out the animals that he's going to give Esau. It's almost 600 animals, over 550 animals. Verse 16, and he delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by themselves. And he said to his servants, pass over before me, put a space between drove and drove. So he's going to send almost 600 animals in thirds. One servant with one third, second servant, another third, third servant with the rest of it. And so that basically the idea is that Esau is going to get three big gifts rather than one massive gift. And the reason he's doing it that way is he's hoping it'll have a certain effect. What he's trying to do is butter Esau up so that Esau will let this whole kill my brother thing go and let bygones be bygones. In verse 20, here's what it says. It says, say to Esau, behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. All these presents are for me uh, to you, Esau, from Jacob. 
And what's he thinking? For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. And afterwards, I'll see his face and perhaps he'll accept me. Now, just to kind of give you an idea of what we're talking about, when we talk about 550 plus animals, is that this would be enough money to live off of the rest of your life. So this is like a massive, massive gift. Jacob is kind of making the point, I know what I did to you early on was wrong. I took a lot from you, but here you go. Let me give it back. That's the idea. And the hope is that Esau will change his mind about killing Jacob, and he won't go postal on everyone and kill everyone when they meet the next day. So Jacob gives over a very, very large portion of his wealth. And what is he ultimately seeking? Assurance. And what's the one thing you cannot buy? Assurance. We strive for a sense of assurance we can never truly have. It is amazing what people are willing to pay for something that cannot be bought. And that is assurance. Now, just to be clear, just to make sure we're on, I'm not saying insurance. Get insurance, okay? I'm not talking about insurance. I guess that's part of it. We're talking about the economy of assurance. That's what people really want. We want to know what's going to happen when we meet our Esau. We want to know what's going to happen tomorrow. We want assurance. Advertisers know this. That's why half of marketing is just playing on our need for assurance. Right? You buy this product, you can be assured you'll never look old. You eat this, you can be assured that you'll be healthy. Right? You send your kids to this school, you can be assured they'll have an advantage. I mean, that's half of advertising. It's just, you need assurance? We'll give it to you. But at the end of every single ad, they have to put a little asterisk with the words, results may vary. Because what's the one thing an advertiser can't give you? Assurance. Right? Like One of the things I find the most hilarious in advertising is pharmaceutical commercials. Hilarious. Right? They always have like some insane name for the drug, right? So this is Meloxium. Meloxium helps with migraines. And then here's the idea. You're watching this pharmaceutical commercial, and there's a mom, and she no longer has a migraine. And so now she lives in a very like you know uh, upper class suburb. Because she doesn't have migraines anymore. So now she gets to walk the dog on Main Street. She gets to, you know, go to wine tasting with her friends whenever she wants. And it's this video of this mom, you know, she's doing yoga in this peaceful place. And for the first 15 seconds of the video, the narrator's like, Meloxium, studies have proved Meloxium helps with your migraines. But then the rest of the commercial, the second, like the, the last 45 seconds of the commercial, you still got the mom, you know, in an art studio, like in downtown, right? You still got the mom doing all these fun things and not having migraines, but the narrator switches his tone a little bit. He's like, meloxium could cause heart blockages and heart palpitations and severe stroke. You're going to lose one leg, maybe two. Right? You know, terrible diarrhea for the rest of your life. Everyone's going to hate you. Nobody likes you. Like, it's like, what? What do you, Is meloxium a praise or a prayer request? Right? They are trying to sell you something. What are they selling you? Assurance. What's the one thing they know they cannot give you? Assurance. Because no amount of money, no amount of medicine can assure anyone that they will live forever free from sickness. Only Jesus, blood, death, and resurrection can do that. 
In fact, instead of a commercial break, maybe we take a gospel break. Blessed assurance comes from Jesus being ours and us being his. Blessed assurance can only come from one hand, and it's a nail-pierced hand. It can only come from one guy, and he's bloodied on a cross with you on his mind. It can only come from an empty tomb that's still there. You can, drive your, you can, you can take a flight, rent a car, and drive up, right up to where your Savior rose again to give you assurance that he's with you today, and he'll be with you forever. That's the only, I mean, do not seek assurance anywhere else. It cannot be found except for in Jesus Christ. Outside of him, there is no assurance. No matter how much we spend, even for Jacob, he seeks this assurance, verse 21, so he went, took the present over before him, and he himself lodged in that company. Later that night, verse 22, he rose up at night, took his two wives, two women servants, his 11 sons, passed over the Ford Jabak, or the River Jabak. So they go over the river, he stays behind. He took them, sent them over the brook, uh, and sent over all that he had. So he sends over his possessions. Verse 24, and Jacob was left alone. He separates himself from his family. He sends them over the river Jabbok. He stays behind. Why? Because he's still at the height of his fear and the height of his worry. Tomorrow's the big day, the day he meets Esau. And it is, it's not sure. Have I sent enough? Was 550 plus animals enough? Was the greeting enough? It is gnawing at him. He's going borderline manic in this moment. He, he just needs to be alone because if he can think this through again and if he can line it all up in his head again and if he can scheme a little more, if he can just plot a little more, if he can just sit at the manager's desk a little bit longer, maybe he can make this all work out. And he's trusting himself until God shows up and wrestles him back down to a simple trust. I mean, boy, does Jacob have a surprise coming on the river Jabbok. Right? He thinks he is there by himself. He is not. He thinks his big battle is tomorrow. The truth is his big battle is tonight. Check this out. One of the most breathtaking fascinating scenes in all of the scriptures where we see that there is no need to wrestle but we assess the situation rather than our savior we catastrophize everything we attempt to manage our lives rather than steward it we strive for an assurance we can never have but then God wrestles us down to a simple trust verse 24 beautiful Jacob was left alone and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. That's unbelievable. I love this story. So incredible. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, the man touched the hollow of his thigh. Really, that would be up probably the hip. He touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh and went out of joint and he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaketh. And he said, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. And he said to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name will no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. First time we read that word in the scriptures. For as a prince thou hast power, thou hast fought with God and with man, and you have prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, tell me, I pray, your name. And he said, why do you ask my name? And he blessed Jacob there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God. 
face to face, and my life is preserved. And he passed over Peniel, the sun rose upon him, and he limped on his thigh. What an amazing passage. I mean, I am overwhelmed at the glory that is this text in our Bibles. I mean, I cannot get enough of staring this passage down and trying to get all I can out of it. I mean, this is worth hours and hours of consideration and discussion. I mean, first of all, just of the things we don't know. Like, what did Jacob think was going down for the first few hours of that wrestling match? You're alone in the woods, and here comes this dude from the Blair Witch Project coming to take you down. Like, he... He doesn't know at first it's God. He doesn't know who it is. Just a, like, is this Esau? Or is this some crazy robber guy? A Florida man attacks Jacob. Like, who is this? I mean, why does he want to stop at daybreak? Why, why is that like, oh, daybreak, time to go? Well, why doesn't he tell Jacob his name? Lots of questions. But th- there's so much we do know. And there's so much we learn. Because what this is, I mean, this is amazing. This is the external picture of what's been going on internally in Jacob his whole life. And this is the external picture of what's been going on the whole time in my life, what's been going on for you since the day you were born. And that you have been wrestling for blessing. And the amazing, eye-opening, jaw-dropping truth is this, that you think you're wrestling your Esau. You think you're wrestling the bank. You think you're wrestling your family. You think you're wrestling college. You think you're wrestling trials. You think you're wrestling your health. The whole time, you've been wrestling with God. This man starts off as a stranger picking a fight, but by the end, he says, I have seen the face of God. And have been preserved. Likely this is a Christophany, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus before he's Jesus, if you will. God the Son in human form, but before his actual incarnation, he comes to wrestle Jacob and he wrestles us. Make no mistake, we are wrestling the manager for his management position. We are wrestling his sovereignty his right to make our life whatever he wants to make it. We are wrestling his plan, his right to direct us wherever he wants us to go. We are wrestling his definition of good and his right to work all things out according to it. We are wrestling his lordship over us. That's what we're wrestling. And in our wrestling, he is kind enough, so kind enough to break us It is he that breaks us down. And by breaking us down, he is making us not weaker, but stronger. Jacob comes out of the wrestling match broken, and yet he is stronger. Because Jacob, he comes into this thing freaking out about meeting Esau tomorrow. He's praying that God would help, and God comes to help. And what does God do? He breaks his hip. See, how is this helping is that Jacob needs to stop relying on his ability to run from his problems and limp with God into them. For limping with God is more powerful than running on your own. He ran from Esau the first time. He ran from Laban. And we all need to hear this. No more running. Face your problems. 
with God. Amen? Jacob has no choice to do that now. He cannot run. He cannot fight. He has no position of strength. He can only go greet Esau face-to-face, hand-in-hand with God. And yet that is all the strength we could ever need. I mean, isn't God's help fascinating? It is so fascinating. Jacob prays this lengthy prayer earlier in the text. He said, God, help me. Change my circumstances. God doesn't change anything. He doesn't take out Esau. He doesn't give him a new route to Canaan. What does he change? His name. God does not show up with new weapons. He shows up with a new name. And it's this name that will define him and his sons and the tribes and the nation that bears it to this day, Israel. This is how Jesus operated in Genesis. This is how he operated In his incarnation, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just as Jesus came in human form to Jacob, Jesus came to us in human form 2,000 years ago through the womb of a virgin in Nazareth. He took up time and space. He entered into human history as the Messiah. And as the Messiah, everyone expected him to change everything around him. Everyone expected him to take over for King Herod and change Rome. They all expected him to make all these problems go away. But he did not change the creation around men. Those who believed on him, he made them into a new creation. It's very interesting that he changed the name they bear in the same world around them. He called the outcast included. He called the sinner the friend of God. He called the broken whole. He called the dead alive. He called the poor in spirit blessed. He called the thief on the cross a resident of paradise. He called those who were trying to work their way to heaven. It is finished. He rose again from death. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And it's just so fascinating to me that Jesus does not renew everything around you. He renews you with a new birth and a new mission and a new eternal destiny. And he does all this by overpowering you with conviction and by taking over for you and wrestling you to repentance. I mean, that's how Jacob wins the match. Did you notice this? I find this so interesting. Verse 28. I mean, this is is where I'll get Baptocostal right here. Unbelievable. He said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince, thou hast striven with God and with men and hast prevailed. Like, question mark. How has he prevailed? He is shaking in his boots to face Esau tomorrow. How do he prevail with God? God literally has him pinned to the ground as he says this. How'd he win? He won through losing. The only way to win your war with God is to lose it. And the Bible word for this is repentance. God, you are right. God, I am wrong. God, you are king. I serve you. You don't obey me. I obey you. I'm not in charge. You're in charge. 
You see, you think you're wrestling life to work out the way you want it to work out, and you think you got to win. The truth is you're really wrestling God to bless you, for him to have kingship over you, and to receive that blessing, and to have, have him as your good king who gives you good things until you, the good news brings you to a good new heaven and a new earth. You have to lose your fight with him and accept his grace and let him be God of your life. He won through losing. He repents. God, you win. God, you're in charge. God, you're good. I'm not. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whatever you say, God is wrestling Jacob back down to a simple trust. Whatever you say. And Jacob accepts. He decides, I'm not the steward, I'm the manager. I'm not the manager, I'm the steward, rather. He decides, I'm not the savior, you're the savior. I'll assess you, not my situation. You know the future, good enough for me. Won't take any more peaks. And he's determined to stay this way. He said, let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And God does bless him down in verse 29. The sun starts to come up. Jesus says, okay, time to go. And Jacob has every reason to let go because he is in a ton of pain. But Jacob grabs Jesus and says, you are the true and the living God. I am not letting you go until you bless me. And God honors this attitude when we persist with God, no matter how painful. Endure, 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 endure obedience, endure sound doctrine, endure spiritual disciplines. Endure. God honors this. Jesus says, let go. And Jacob says, no. And it's actually not disobedience. It is a holy stubbornness. It's like in John 6, where Jesus is preaching the gospel. And he says, I'm the bread of life. And to be saved, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus came to the 12 and said, you guys go too. You want to leave too? Everybody else is. But Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You're the only one who has the words of eternal life. That's the persistence that was in Peter. That's the persistence back all the way in Genesis in Jacob. He says, I'm not letting you go because I got nothing else to hold on to. And here's really where we see the simple trust come out of Jacob. As he clings to Christ, he is saying, I cannot manage. I cannot make this work. I cannot survive without you. I don't want to survive without you. Jesus, you are everything. And I won't let you go until you bless me. It is my only hope. That's simple trust. The only way to win your life, to win in this life, is to lose your battle with God and persist with him no matter how painful. Wrestle God in prayer. Wrestle in the scriptures. Wrestle to be in the fellowship of believers. Wrestle to worship. Look Jesus in the eye day after day and say, I will not let you go until you bless me. And what you'll experience is that he won't let you go either that you will be his Israel, the one God fights for, which is what Israel means. Some interesting wordplay. He says, what's your name? He says, Jacob, which means I fight, right? 
means supplanter or heel grabber, wrestler. I wrestle with God. And he says, your name's no longer Jacob, it's Israel, which means God fights. And in this case, it's the idea that God fights for you, not against you anymore. You'll be as Israel, and you'll experience that over time, God is so much better at fighting for you than you are. And you'll realize over time that he is so much better at management than you are. And you will realize over time that he is so much better at outcomes than you are. You will have that, that realization finally that God can be trusted. So it's the next morning. Jacob limps. He limps across the river. He joins back up with his family. He hasn't slept. He is now injured. I'm sure his family was like, what happened to you? He's like, I'll explain later. They walk towards Canaan. They know they're going to run into Esau. This is the moment Jacob has been fearing. This is the moment he has been managing. And he is seeking assurance. And what is the outcome of this dreaded potential future? What is the outcome of this meeting with Esau? Well, we read about it in Genesis 33, 1 through 4. Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, Esau came with him, 400 men. And he divided the children, Leah and Rachel, the two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and their children first, Leah second. Finally, in the back, him, Rachel, and Joseph Verse 3, he passed over before them and he bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Verse 4, and Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. No pillaging, no slaughtering, no killing, no escaping, just blessing. All of his catastrophizing, all of his management, all of his assurance seeking was all for naught. Because he is Israel, the one God fights for. And if you're in Christ, you are his Israel, the one God has fought for and will fight for forevermore. And Jacob will limp the rest of his life with this name. And for the rest of his life, he will know that there is no need to wrestle. But we assess our situation rather than our Savior. We catastrophize everything. We attempt to manage our lives rather than steward our lives. We strive for an assurance we can never really have until God has to wrestle us back down to a simple trust. Do you feel like you're wrestling? That's normal. That's part of being a sinner in a fallen world. But I hope now you have figured out more about what this wrestling match is really all about, that God is the one you're wrestling with. And that the only way to win is to lose and give him full control and to limp with him wherever you go the rest of your life rather than stride on your own. Because he longs to bring you that simple trust and great blessing. Let's pray, and we'll sing some more. Jesus, thank you for Jacob's life, that we get to look into it and learn a lot about our own life. Jesus, we wrestle, and we wrestle with you. And we are sorry. We repent 
of taking the reins or attempting to, making plans without you, convincing you to be on our side rather than walking along your side. Forgive us for walking up to you and saying, follow me, rather than accepting the fact that you walked to us and said, follow me. Jesus, help us to see that life is never going to be perfect, but you are present. Lord, help us to see that if we, we don't need to know the future because we have you as our Father. Help us to see that we are just stewards, servants on the hook to obey the best we can, but not to be the one who gives the orders. Help us to see. Lord, and I pray that we would lose our war with you. You win. You're in control. You're God. You're king. We follow. We love you because you first loved us. Thank you for your bloody death and resurrection that secures us and saves us even when we go out of our mind next to the Jabbok River and try to take over again and again and again. Thank you that grace covers it all. In Jesus' name, amen.